allow me, if you would, um, an opportunity to paint a picture for you. Uh, it's a picture we see throughout Scripture. And it is a picture of life as a pathway. A very particular sort of a journey from one point to another. It's a narrow path. It's a gradual incline up path. Almost everything within those on the path and everything around that path is trying to knock those on the path off of the path. There's a right way to be on that path. There's a way that we are supposed to be on that path. It could be argued that the development of those on the path, the personal transformation of those on the path, is the goal of the path. But that wouldn't be quite right. A valuable part of the goal, for sure, the end point, point B, the destination, is also not quite the goal. It's really all about the creator himself, the one who created the path and those on it. He is the actual goal. His fame, his glory, his visibility. The people of God and the godly life, as we know it, is a journey. It's a pathway that begins, for all intents and purposes, in Genesis chapter 12. You could argue from the very beginning, but we see it most clearly when God speaks to Adam, Abraham and Sarah. And I'm paraphrasing quite a bit here. He says to Adam, I don't want you to stay here. I want you to follow me to a new place, a place of much land and many children, which in that time would mean blessing, God's favor, land and children. Moses, another significant character among many other on that path, and the message to him was very similar. I'm going to release you and my people from Egyptian captivity and lead you to another land. I promise you, a good land. The destinations are very vague. But what is most real throughout the Old Testament narrative, the entire existence of the Abrahamic people, the Jews, is that that journey from here to there is one that includes a great deal of resistance, problems, difficulty. It's a, it's a predictable cycle and mix of victory and defeat pain and pleasure, curse and blessing, gain and loss, obedience and disobedience. 
And eventually that path led to a city, Jerusalem. A few million people, a systematic, robust religion, a process of forgiveness where failure in that religion occurred. They were, in fact, still shy of their destination. They were occupied by Rome. They were not in the way that they would think blessed because the nations around them outnumbered them. Their land was greater. Their, 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 incest, their ancestry was, was greater. Their power was greater. They had not arrived. All in all, that journey was about 28 generations, and it spanned 1,700 years. And instead of being led by judges and kings in Jerusalem in the first century, as we know it, was now led by priests, enforced by religious elites like Sadducees and Pharisees. Paul was one of the most passionate and powerful. As we look through the book of Romans, taking a little breather here to paint this picture for you before we move from chapter 5 to chapter 4, we see what Paul has learned at this critical time in the journey of God's people. He was one of the most passionate and powerful Pharisees, upholder of the way of God, the way to be on the path. And when Jesus showed up, he became a threat. Life as they knew it on that path and a threat to the promised destination. This is the context. His teachings, and, and maybe more importantly, his very life, Jesus, sought to redefine the understanding of that path. In fact, Jesus said it wasn't a redefinition. It was a long overdue correction. And quite naturally, Paul led a passionate and violent resistance to Jesus, to Jesus' people, and to Jesus' way. Jesus taught that although their religion, their, their law, had captured with great precision how God or, or how a godly person should behave. It missed God's aim that his people would actually be godly. You hear what I'm saying? Are you with me so far? Jesus said that the point of God is for his people to be godly not to simply behave in a godly fashion.
They had come to understand that if they could exercise the detailed behaviors of their religion, that that would lead them along the path to the destination that God had for them. And Jesus was saying, it's not how you behave that gets you to the promise. It's who you are. Jesus said, of course you shouldn't murder, you shouldn't adulter. But more precisely, Jesus said, you shouldn't, in your heart, be angry or lustful. To please God, Jesus said, to discover the promise, to be on the right path, to find the destination, absolutely nothing within your heart can be morally wrongful. And with that, Jesus leveled the playing field. With regard to the heart, from the elites within the religious system to those that had been cast out from it for a, from a complete ability to behave, they were now, at least according to Jesus, all of the same condition. Are you with me? See the picture? Everyone now, according to Jesus, including you and me, are doomed. The path we are on, if we are on the path of Moses, Paul, religion, is a path that leads to the wrong place. Doesn't lead to the promise, doesn't lead to God, leads to the separation from God. Jesus said, unless you get this right, eternal separation from God is inevitable. You will not reach the promised land. You will not experience the presence of God. Your heart is on trial, and it has no chance of winning. The best we do, right, you and I, the best we can do on our own is recognize anger and lust in our heart and not let it come out murderously or in adultery. That's the best we can do. That was, that was and continues to be a predominant understanding of Christianity. That I don't allow the wrongfulness of my heart to come out. And Jesus says, that is not my path. I don't want any of that even in your heart. And to that, we all say, uh-oh, 
I can't keep my heart from those sorts of impulses. I can only not act upon them. You can't ask me to fix what I cannot control. And if it's my heart that's on trial, not my behavior, I'm doomed. And then Jesus brings what he was sent for. Good news. The gospel. Hope. The key to the promise. Jesus says, I am the path. I am the promise. We all know John 3.16, most of us have at least heard it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal promised life. Those who believe in him will have eternal life, blessing, presence, power, promised land. It's a journey, not of behavior. It's a journey of faith. And Jesus demonstrated that life of faith perfectly. He endured every kind of suffering, every kind of temptation, internal and external. Yet, he walked a perfectly straight line on the narrow path with unflinching faith. From his baptism in the Jordan River to his crucifixion on Calvary Hill, he quite literally walked a narrow, straight path through the life that he had been given to live. The last test came at the hands of his own people, among which, again, we find Paul. Paul railed against Jesus, his people, and his way. How could a person be the son of God with a message that the law of God cannot get you to God? How could Jesus promise a reprobate, a morally corrupt, ungodly person that has been nowhere near the path of God that they could be assured of God's approval and being with him forever by faith, by simply believing in him? How could 
could it possibly be true that someone could be justified by faith rather than a lifetime of obedience? This must be stopped. Because if it's not, we will never get to the actual promised land. Jesus is going to derail thousands of years of work. He cannot possibly be the Messiah. He must be stopped and his people must be quenched. And then one day, Paul was walking along an old path on his way to arrest the leaders of a Jesus outpost in Damascus. It hits Paul like a ton of bricks. A a blinding light, to be precise. And the voice of Jesus himself speaks to Paul. By this time, Jesus has been crucified, dead, buried, raised to new life, ascended into heaven, and Jesus speaks to Paul. And the long story short, is that Paul realized it's always been about. The pathway has always been about faith. Paul spends the next three years furiously reconsidering the content of his PhD. The Torah, the prophets, the Psalms of David, the wisdom of Solomon. And there it is in plain sight Plain sight, faith, faith, faith. Adam and Eve, don't eat from that tree. Trust me, have faith. Genesis chapter 15, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. By faith, Abel brought God God a better offering than Cain. By faith. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By faith. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army marched around for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Japheth, David, Samuel, the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle, routed foreign army armies by faith. I'm reading Hebrews 11. And it says this, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They were all commended for their faith. Paul suddenly couldn't see anything 
but faith throughout the books of law and instruction. And of course, he would have remembered Stephen. One of the first ministers assigned to the church of God who was stoned to death for his faith in Christ. Paul had approved that execution and it is likely that he was in attendance. And I am mine, in my mind, I imagine that Stephen and he looked at each other. I think it haunted Paul that in the eyes of Stephen, he didn't see anger. He didn't see vengeance. He saw faith. Paul was beginning to see something in the scriptures, and he was also beginning to see something in the people of God. He couldn't have believed it would be possible, but he was seeing actual transformed hearts. Paul knew his own heart as a Pharisee. He knew the hearts of all the other Pharisees. He knew they were all hypocrites. Their hearts were not good. The religion had not changed their hearts. It had only changed their behavior. And in the people of God, the people that Jesus was bringing along, the new Christian church, their hearts were being transformed, not through a lifetime of discipline, but by a heart of faith in the resurrected Jesus and the spirit he sent. He saw actual love, true sacrifice, a laying down of one's life he's never thought possible. He saw forgiveness, unexplainable courage, he saw deep heart change, godly lives that religion had always hoped to bring about but never did. And then he realized God's aim wasn't just the heart of the Jew, but of everyone, everywhere. And then he wrote things like this, Romans chapter three, which we'll get to in a couple weeks. He says, now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known apart from the law to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. All are freely justified by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Paul has been revolutionized. He says in Romans 7, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in a new way of the spirit and in the old, not in the old way of the written code. He wrote in Galatians chapter 2, for through the law, I died to the, the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. I have uh, considered my former way of earning 
my way, my former way uh, that was dependent entirely on me, that way of life I now consider dead to me. That is no longer the way. That has been crucified with Christ. I, my way, my performance is no longer what lives. It is Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. I never leave the grace of God. It's not a one-time thing. I live there, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Do you see where Paul has moved from? He would have looked at a a writing like what we find in Proverbs. I've just picked one out. This is Proverbs 4. Imagine how this verse must have now struck him. This is Proverbs chapter 4. I instruct you in the way of wisdom and lead you along straight paths. The path of the righteous is like the morning sun shining ever brighter till the full light of day. My son... Pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear toward my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Had to be blowing his mind. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you give careful thought to the paths for your feet. Paul would have been hearing a lot about what he taught, what Jesus taught about the Spirit from the disciples. He'd have quickly seen it to be one and the same with this proverbial wisdom of God. The wisdom of God of the Old Testament is very much the Spirit of God. And it is the key to staying on the path of God. And he wrote things like this. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Performance is dead to me. And now we live by the Spirit. Let us keep in step with the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit the fruit of the heart that is spirit-led, the fruit of the heart that has been transformed by the spirit is love and joy and peace and forbearance and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, this is Galatians 2.22, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. That means you can't make enough policies and constraints and, and put enough threats in place that can make a person joyful, peaceful, kind, this is work of the Spirit and work of the Spirit alone. And as Paul's looking at all of this, he recognizes the path of God. The journey of the kingdom life. He sees it through the Old Testament, in the prophets, through the Psalms and the Proverbs. It is a Christ-justified, Spirit-enabled Life of faith, that is the path. Adam, 
Abraham started it. The Old Testament is riddled with those who live according to it. Jesus exemplified it. Paul welcomed everyone into it. He said in Romans 5, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And then he summarized the path for all of eternity. We read this last week, Romans 5, 3 and 4. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. This is the path. And now those who put their faith in the resurrected Jesus walk this path. Suffering, perseverance, character, hope. Enabled by the Spirit to persevere. The suffering. Enabled by the Spirit to be transformed in character, in heart, enabled by the Spirit to have hope, to understand, to be in touch, to experience the promise. Those on the path of God walk by faith toward an ever-growing hope, never fully obtaining it in this lifetime, but enjoying a peace and a joy that is unexplainable. <clears throat> I say all that, say this, church. The world is full of unending suffering of all sorts and severity. I don't have to tell you that. And God's direct intervention in changing that suffering is, in my opinion, not a high priority. Not nearly as high as we would like it to be. I don't see in Scripture how answered prayer is a primary technique of God's to build his people. Let me say that again. I don't see in Scripture, I don't see experientially in life how one of God's techniques for building us up into persevering character-rich, hopeful people is not the answering of prayer. We think that it is. We think that if God answered my prayers, those answers to prayers, my faith would increase. But even once when Jesus had commanded and provided a miraculous catch of fish, moments later, he asked his disciples, do you love me more than that? Apart from miracles and answered prayers, do you love me? Do I have your faith no matter what this world delivers? I don't know how and when God answers prayer I, I, I cannot figure it out. I, I know he does. But it's very difficult for me to know precisely when he does and when he doesn't. And just like you, 
It causes me a great deal of angst when he doesn't answer prayers that we know he really should answer. I've told you about my 35-year-old neighbor, three young children, six, four, and two, lovely wife, 35, she's been fighting cancer for 18 months. Prayers all over the place. Friday, they called hospice. You're going to make it. Sarah didn't make it. Our beloved Sarah. Our elder Tim didn't make it. Were prayers answered? Are prayers being answered for my neighbor right now? Were prayers answered for Sarah? Were prayers answered for Tim? Prayers been answered for those that you've lost? Are prayers being answered for the 700,000 people estimated that will die from cancer this year? Some of those prayers were answered for sure. Not the main one we prayed, right? We can look for small wins, but the main prayer is just not answered there. We, we quite naturally want to experience the blessings and the presence and the promises of God by seeing God show up in this life. By his showing up and relieving us of the issues and the suffering of this life. But God wants to build a belief from within our heart that rises to meet him where he is so that our life doesn't reflect to the world what God's done for me or what he's done for the world, but so that our true nature, our heart, in the midst of the worst possible circumstances, points to him, his magnificence, above it all, that brings a promise and a hope for what is true and who he is. The point is for us to increasingly know through this life of suffering and perseverance and the building of our character to more deeply and deeply know he exists, he's true, he's good, he's best, he's waiting. There is a full experience of the promise to be had and our hope continues to grow for that rather than what I want here and now, what all of us want here and now is heaven now. On a much more minor level, we've been praying that we would be in our new building by September 12th. I'm praying to God. The church God hasn't met for 500 days. Give us a place. It's not going to happen. Not in September. October. Last week, I asked you to pray for our administrators, particularly Kim and Lonnie and Brandy trying to line up details in a space where it's just next to impossible. Kim contracted COVID. When the world were you praying for? <laughs> that's funny. But that's not funny. God, she already overloaded. You launched, you load her down with COVID? 
and on and on and on. My point is not to disparage prayer. I believe in it. The Bible commands it. Paul says, do it continually. God certainly inclines his ear and acts accordance with our requests. We see it all through scripture and many of you can testify to it, but James says, consider it pure joy when you faith trials. Peter says, friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. This is the pathway of God. This is the pathway of Jesus. It's a pathway of suffering that builds something within us that cannot be built any other way that leads to character and hope in the future. Paul says, get on that path. James says, get on that path. Peter says, get on that path. God's aim is to build your character through the perseverance of struggle. Whether God creates or allows the struggles of life, I don't know, probably both. What I do know is that the struggles of life, all of them, are part of a process that he uses for showing you the power of the Spirit within you to live by faith through any circumstance. That is the spirit of God. And that, through the faith and the spiritual development, you become like his son. That's the goal. Who went through all the same stuff. God didn't rescue him, frankly, ever. What he did was he lived by faith through it all. And being a found in appearance, Paul says in Philippians, as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's translated to he was faithful through all of it, even the worst. I wish I could sit with each one of you and ask you about your life and hear about the struggles and the difficulties and the strains and the disappointments and the unanswered prayers and say to you, the Spirit of God is alive in you because of Jesus. He wants to show you himself through this in your life. You're on the right path. I'm sorry for the suffering. The Spirit of God is in you your heart is going to be transformed and you will have an ever-increasing knowledge of how, who God truly is. And that will be not only an encouragement to you, but it will be an encouragement to the world around you. My neighbor's wife, of which this does not comfort her in the least right now, faith is on level 1,000. Unexplainable insights, unexplainable strength, unexplainable vision. She's like a 50-year faith veteran at this point. She and her children have a path of faith to follow. Arnie's family has a path of faith to follow amidst a great deal of pain. 
Many of you are on paths that are full of suffering. And I'm sorry to tell you, this is the path of life. Kingdom life. It's a very particular sort of journey from one point to another. Guys can come back up. I'm not going to get to that thing I told you I was going to say that would trigger you to come back up. It's a narrow path. It's a mostly uphill path. Almost everything within and around is trying to knock people of God off of the path. There's a right way to be on that path. The end point is not the goal. Your transformation, albeit a valuable part of it, not the goal. The goal is the creator God, his glory, his fame, his visibility, our knowledge, our hope in him. The promised land is now in Jesus, not fully, but it is now. It is now, but it is not yet. And it is his presence by his spirit his perseverance. It is his character within us. It's ever-increasing hope for the fullness that is to come. The path is suffering and perseverance and character that leads to something deeply assured within us, a hope, the promise of God in full in the future. I would love to read 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and chapter 4, but I've got to quit. I'll read the very end of it. We have this treasure in jars of clay. These broken jars of clay that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. The way we walk through this life of suffering is a power that comes from God. It's not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side. We are not crushed. We are perplexed, but we're not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down. Stand with me, please. Not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal bodies. Let's worship the one in whom we trust, the object of our faith, Jesus.